If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, and we're going to be there through chapter 24, verse 31. We're going to knock out about 30 verses today as we continue in our study through Matthew. If you're our guest, we've been going through Matthew for the last year and a half, and we are eight weeks away, church. Eight weeks away. Don't get so excited uh, before we finish. Um, and because we're just going in order, it is determining when and, and you know, what we study. And today, if you're a guest in particular, you have come at a time where the fireworks begin because Jesus is going to talk about the future um, in a way that uh, you know, historically could get, could get very exciting. So I'm, I'm going to, because of our delay um, from the light show, we're, we're going to, I'm going to push a little more aggressively and kind of skip some of the introductory material and just kind of get right into it today. Um, for all of your sakes. So here's, here's, what we're, here's, what we're gonna, here's what I wanna say to you. So, uh, number one, um, you know how you, when you are um, sitting in your, it's somewhere and you're doing something and then you realize, oh, I need to go over into this other room and do that thing. So you get up and you go over to that, air, that room to do that thing and you, when you get into that room, you completely forgot. <laughs> what it is that you were going to do in that room. I don't know why that happens. I have some theories. The older I get, I'm just going to blame that. Um, but I don't, it's not just me. Like, Trey gets this on. He's got it. He gets it honest for me. Like, I, I lose my keys. I lose my, I forget why I'm doing what I'm, what I'm doing at all. Um, so if you understand that feeling, then you can understand what, um, what could happen when you start to read things about which we really don't know anything, okay? So we're, we're looking at chapters 24 and 25, and we're talking about Jesus is speaking to his disciples, explaining to them, he's answering their question about his final, ultimate return as the king of heaven and earth, okay? And in talking about it, you can read it in such a way that makes it, you can get so ingrained in the minutia and in the speculation and in what this could mean and what that could mean that you might be tempted to just throw your hands up and, and, or, if, or just get lost and stay in it and become obsessed with it for the rest of your life, okay? And that is certainly not Jesus' intention and it's not mine. Okay, it's not going to be the approach that we take, which is why we're doing this chapter and the next chapter over two weeks, because Jesus' intention was to, um, was to bring clarity and certainty to his disciples about his future reign. Clarity and certainty, clarity and certainty. If you read Matthews 24 and 25 and you don't get clarity and certainty, then you're not reading it right. Okay? Or you're, you're obsessing about things that aren't really trying to communicate what you're trying to force out of them. Okay? So I'm trying to bring today clarity and certainty. And here's, here's chapter 23 to the, to the part of 24 we're going to be today is an answer. This is what it says. This is why we believe Jesus is coming back. I'm going to give you three or four reasons why we believe Jesus is coming back to reign. And then next week, I'm going to give you uh, four, five reasons why it matters. Okay? So today's question is, why do we believe Jesus is coming back next week? Why it really matters, okay? Reason number one, we're going to be in chapter 23, verse 37, and we're going to take about 30 verses, okay? 
The first reason we believe Jesus is coming back was because he said he would. (laughs) All right? Jesus claimed a lot of things about himself. He claimed his divinity. He claimed his messiahship. He predicted the crucifixion. He predicted the resurrection. And one of the things that Jesus claimed is that he would return to reign over a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 37 of chapter 23. I touched on it last week. But here it is more in depth. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Okay, we talked about the compassion of Jesus, even as he you know, pushed those woes and woes and laments over them. And he says, see, your house has left you. You will not see me again, Jerusalem, Israel, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you remember, back in Matthew 21, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and people were breaking off branches of trees and they were waving them and, and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they were putting the branches on the road to make a carpet for Jesus to come in as king, and they were saying what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, they were thinking politics. They were thinking monarchy. They were thinking people group. They were thinking nation. They weren't thinking Jesus. And now Jesus, after spending all this time with the religious leaders and pointing out their faults and and his heart breaking for their, their lack of understanding for who he is and what he's done and their open hostility to that, he says, man, I wanted to gather you in. I wanted to gather you in, but you wouldn't habit, but there's coming a day where you're going to get it, and you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, not in the way that you said it in Matthew 21, but in a way that actually is true in your heart. You're going to get it, which gives us a little glimpse about God's plan for Israel in general, does it not? Okay, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's the claim. Jesus said it right here. I'm coming back, and you're going to recognize me for who I actually am, and you're going to proclaim it. Okay? That's a really bold statement, and then, but we don't get a lot from the disciples about this um, until they walk out. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Matthew 24. Jesus left, and he was going out of the temple, and his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. It's architecture, truly amazing and beautiful, specifically for its time. And Jesus replied to them, do you see all these things? I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that was they left Jerusalem. You can almost feel the, the sense in which the disciples were murmuring about this prediction. And so they come out in verse 3, the Mount of Olives. The disciples approached him privately and said, well, tell us. When will these things happen? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The stone's being unturned. What is the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So now, here's, so here's where the meat of all this comes in. So here's the question. Tell us, when and what signs? When and what signs? Verses 4 through 14 are a non-answer. Okay? They're a non-answer. When posed with when and what signs, Jesus says, well, first let me tell you all the things that aren't signs. 
So if you, on your own, read verses 4 through 14, you can just know these are Jesus saying, well, guys, you, you might be tempted to believe that this is a sign, or this is a sign, or that is a sign, or this is a sign. It's not a sign, so just be cool, okay? Be cool. That's the Rob Tim's version of verses 4 through 14, okay? The, verses 4 through 14 are not predictions. They are not, they are, they are, they, they're not, not at all. They are backstory that's going to lead up to more specific things that are coming just a moment, okay? In verses 4 through 14, there are actually nine different things listed. Those are nine things that are not signs, have nothing to do with Jesus' return. You might think they would, but they're, they're not, okay? So we get that rabbit trail done. So number one, Jesus has said, the reason we believe that he's returning is because he said that he would. And his disciples are asking, well, tell us about it. Tell us about it. And so Jesus begins to tell us about it. So the second reason we believe that Jesus is coming back is because, in verses 15 through 28, Jesus made predictions about events and the conditions around those events that came true. And that gives us confidence that his prediction of his return is going to come true. Okay? So skip down to verses 15 through 28, where you have the, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and he talks about horrible suffering. Jesus makes two predictions about his second coming. The first is tied to his comment in verse 2 about the destruction of the temple. And the focus is on how awful that whole process is going to be. Look at verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant women and the nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter on or on a, on a Sabbath. Okay? So the, the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70 by the, by the Romans, and the... And, and, uh, and the phrase abomination of desolation, those are synonyms, the same thing. The abomination of desolation was the destruction of the temple, and it occurred in AD 70, just as Jesus here, 40 years prior or so, said that it would. And as Jesus predicted here in this passage, it was not pretty, which is why he says, I mean, it'd be in using metaphor to help you get an understanding of just how urgent and terrible this process would be, if you're working on your roof, don't stop inside the house to leave. You need to flee to the mountains. If, and I hope that it's not on a Sabbath where you feel angst or aren't ready. You better hope that you're not pregnant because it's going to be really hard to run. I want you to get a sense for just how urgent and terrible and awful these things were going to be. And it was. I would love to give you a whole history of just how awful it was. But I won't because the lights went out. Okay. Okay. So Jesus made the prediction, and because it came true, it gives us confidence that his prediction of his own return is going to happen as well. But he doesn't just predict, um, he does, he, Jesus does not end his prediction about conditions there. Okay. Look at verses 21 through 28 on your own. He goes on to describe the way. Life will be in this world from the time of the destruction of the temple. So if you're looking at verses 21 through 28 in your Bible, just say, started after the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and continues to this day. Verses 21 through 28, okay? 
Now, not every theologian agrees with that, but they're wrong. I just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. But, but they still love Jesus. Okay. Um, but I feel pretty confident that to understand what Jesus talks about is this period of great distress in this passage is the entire time period from AD 70 until we're still in it. Okay? We're still in it. Okay? At, in Matthew's gospel, that's what these verses mean in my humble opinion. Okay? So Jesus made this prediction, and it's been true. Life's been a little distressful over the last 2,000 years. I don't know if you know that. Okay? And not just for you, but for everybody. This world's been a mess. You think it's a mess now? It's been a mess, gang. I mean, we, I, will, I will not repeat all of history to you to, to justify my point. I think you, I think you want to know. So why do we believe Jesus is coming back? He said he would. And the predictions that he made about the destruction of the temple and the life of distress that we've all for thousands of generations experienced has been true. And it gives us confidence that he's coming back for real. Okay? But there's a third reason why. Because Jesus not only made those, not only said it and made those predictions, he doubled down on it. Okay? It's one thing to say it, and it's one thing to reinforce it. It is another thing to put all of your money down on it. Right? Okay? Put, and that's what Jesus does in verses 29 through 31. Look at, the, look at the passage with me. Immediately after the distress of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heavens will be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. See, Jesus doesn't just say, I'm coming back. This is what's going to happen in the temple. This is what's going to happen afterward. He doesn't just say that. He doubles down on it by describing the reality of it when it happens. When it occurs, it's going to be like this. Now, to be clear, okay, Jesus is speaking in apocalyptic language. Okay? So he's, it sounds a little bit like Revelation, right? In fact, some of these very words are used in Revelation, correct? And that's because Jesus is speaking with, in a manner that's consistent with apocalyptic literature. It's not, so we're all Western, we're all objective, we're all scientific, we're all very reasonable. And that's just not the way that apocalyptic literature is meant to be read. It's, it's meant to be read metaphorically, illustratively. It's meant to communicate an idea, not give, it's not a manual for how to put something together and understand something from a scientific Western point of view, Okay. So, it's a, all, Jesus' language here is a vivid metaphor to illustrate just how seismic and cosmic his return will be. And if you read it like that, it's not actually stars are not actually going to fall from their place. It's not actually that the sun turns. It's none of that. Those are all just language that in that culture would have made total sense to understand from an apocalyptic literature point of view that it's just going to be really incredible. There's not going to be any doubt. It's going to be seismic and cosmic at a universal level when Jesus returns. Okay? 
And if you read through the text, there are two things Jesus is focused on. Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, not, but sadness, okay? And majesty. Look at verse 30 regarding mourning. Whew, I got to take a breath. Okay, we got to go. All right. Look at verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then I want you to underline this phrase. All the peoples of the earth will mourn. Okay, so I'm looking at my Bible, chapter 24, verse 30, and it says, all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Oh, I have a footnote letter. Does anybody else have a footnote letter in their Bible on the word earth? A little letter there? Raise your hand so I know that I'm not totally boring you to tears. Okay, thank you farmers. You guys are you're holding the college students down this week and you're actually listening to the message. Praise God, you are going to be rescued when Jesus returns. <laughs> The rest of you people, I don't know. All right, so, right, there's a little footnote there. And the reason there's a footnote is because there's an alternative translation for the Greek that actually makes a lot more sense than that. Okay? And the phrase is, or it could say, all the tribes of the land, all the peoples of the earth. Well, the Greek word is phlea. It actually means tribes, not people groups, not ethnos. No, it's tribes, as in the tribes of Israel. Okay? All, and the land would be Israel. That's the way they would have understood it. Okay? So all the tribes of Israel. Now read, the, now read the verse that way. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear, which we do not know what that means. We don't know if the coming is the sign or if there's some other banner like an airplane flying across the beach and telling you, well, here it comes. You know, that's whatever. We don't know. We don't know. But when it will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of Israel will mourn. Now, why would Israel mourn at this sign? Well, you got two options. We were wrong. Or they see the sign and they mourn in repentance that they've been wrong, but now they're right. Romans 9 through 11. Okay. So Jesus emphasized mourning here. But there's also majesty. Look at verse 30 and 31. You've got clouds. You've got power, you've got glory, you've got trumpets, you've got angels, you've got people being gathered together from every direction. You've got all this dramatic language that's meant to communicate the majesty of Jesus' return, the eternal significance of Jesus' return. You remember that song, Days of Elijah? Behold, he comes, riding a giant. Shining like the sun at the trumpets. Okay, so remember, apocalyptic language. He's not literally riding on a cloud, okay? Maybe not literally a trumpet, although maybe some sort of angelic boom that no one will question, okay? These are all first century ways of helping us understand that it's going to be stunning. You won't have words for it, but you'll know exactly what it is. Majesty is what Jesus is communicating. So why do we believe Jesus is coming again? Because he said he would. <laughs> because the predictions associated with his return all came, have come true. And, and Jesus didn't, it's not just that. Jesus said, and let me tell you what it's going to be like. He doubled down on the majesty and the mourning of, that's going to be associated with it. And so we believe. We believe. Now I'm going to spend the whole sermon next week talking about how to live in light of this, why it matters, okay? But there is one takeaway that I'd like for you to have this morning. And it goes back to the fact 
that between AD 70 and now, just this way life is, okay? Now this doesn't mean that this is the way life is. It doesn't mean that it's nonstop evil. It's not, it's pretty beautiful, right? What the, all Jesus is saying is that even though the kingdom of God has begun, even though it's inaugurated through his life and through his death and then through his resurrection, even though that's taking place, there's going to be a continued rejection of the, of, of the kingdom truth. Okay? We live in between the time of what Jesus has done for us and what he will do for us. And in the between, it is a time of distress. If you, if, if kids don't really stress this much, but if you're an adult, you start to stress. You start to look around. You go, you're pulling your hair out. Like, what is this world coming to? It's, it's a total mess. We are not the first generation to think that. My dad thought that. His grandfather thought that. His grandfather thought that. I'm pretty sure I could go all the way back to Rome and walk around and going, what is this world? You know, <laughs> probably a lot worse. Like, we're in a gold. Honestly, we're in a golden age when it comes to the common grace influence on culture, still in the golden age. But I get if you look around and you see distress, and what Jesus is saying to you is, I got this. I've got this. It's the same thing he said to the disciples on the boat in Mark 4 this morning. I've got this. Do you have faith? Do you have the faith? Um, so a few years ago, one of our neighbor kids in, our, in, in the neighborhood came over and, um, and spent, you know, a few hours. You know, our, home, our house was home base for, for him or her that, that day. And that included feeding this child. And at one point, you know, uh, after, we're, after their stay, which went great, you know, because we're a semi-decent family. And... But, but, but that later on, uh, you know, a few days later, the, the child, you know, when the child went home and was recounting her experience at her house, you know, this, this, this child said, Mom, the, the most unhealthy thing in Miss Holly's house was a granola bar. <laughs> a granola bar, Mom. That was the treat at their house, a granola bar, right? Very distressed child, right? Right. And, you know, her trials are just beginning as a a nine-year-old or whatever, okay? So you're going to have your levels of distress. The world is going to... There are more than 2,000 active, uh, identified uh, military combats taking place in the world right now, okay? Not just three or four that you know about in the news. 2,000, okay? The world is full of dread. He's got this. He's got this. Let's pray together. And Lord, I know in the next chapter you're going to tell us exactly what to do because you've got this. And right now we just want to revel in the, in the, in the faith that is required to believe in the second coming of Jesus. Because the, the temptation is to Lord, I think the temptation that we face is, is to read it or just kind of look at the historical records of things and, and conclude like, yeah, you know, you were going to be the Messiah. You were going to be the Messiah, and then you died. And so that there had to be some sort of 
reworking of your teaching to make the second coming possible or true. But the fact of the matter is if we closely analyze the Old Testament and carefully analyze the the work of the prophets and we actually just read the Gospels and take you at your word, it's very, very clear that you intentionally set about to pay the price for sin in your death and beat it in a resurrection and ascend to the Father, inaugurating your kingdom reign to come back again. And you don't even know when, but your Father does. And so we have faith. Give us faith to trust that and live in the meantime well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.